welcome to the Real Estate Raw Show, hosted by Joe Mendoza. Hi guys, Joe Mendoza here in sunny San Diego. Welcome to my show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for sharing the good word. Guys, today we have an incredible person as usual. And check this out. He's a flipper. He owns lots of property. He's done a lot of business. He's went through a lot of the struggles that some of you probably listening go through, right? He's also a partner of Seven Figure Flipping. It's an awesome, awesome business uh, run by several really, really great people, Bill Allen and Mike Simmons himself. And I'll tell you what, they're up to a lot of big things. So welcome to the show, Mike Simmons. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate you having me on. This is going to be fun. I'm excited about it. Me too. Me too. All right. So let's just jump right into it, guys. Yeah. So Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you, of course, but my listeners don't. So maybe a quick elevator pitch. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the short version of my story is Midwest guy, born and raised in Michigan. Um, family was automotive related jobs, union, blue collar mentality, good, hardworking folks, but no entrepreneurs, nobody in my family who was encouraging me to own my own business. As a matter of fact, it was probably, you could say it was discouraged. It, it was definitely go to school, get a job in a union company, stay there for 30 years and retire at 65. Like that was the only plan for me from my parents' perspective, all meaning well, uh, and that's what I did. I went to school. I, I actually went to community college for a while, right out of high school, realized it wasn't for me. I just wasn't into it. I mean, I, I sh it should have been, I should have focused, but I just, nobody was pushing that, right? So I went into a company, uh, a little company you might've heard of called UPS. They're a union company. My family was ecstatic. They were happy. They didn't care if I dropped out of community college. So of course I'm a, you know, 18 year old kid. I dropped out of community college. Nobody cared if I was there anyways. And I was at the job I was going to be at the rest of my life. Fast forward five years, 23 years old, going on 24. Uh, my back is a complete wreck at, at that young age. Uh, I need a chiropractor appointment three times a week just to get out of bed in the morning. And I realized even at that young, young age, I How can't old? do this. 24 at that time. I was going wow. on 24. And I, and I was, I just, I was smart enough to say, I can't do this the rest of my life. If I can't, if I can't get out of bed at 24, how am I going to get out of bed at 44? It's never going to happen. Right. So, uh, I left there, went into another company, long story short, kind of bounced around and, and realized the automotive industry went through real upheaval. And there was a lot of layoffs happening around the year 2000. And I realized at that point, I didn't have a college degree. I had some experience, but Honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hire me necessarily. I'm not the most qualified person in the world to hire out in the open market. So I went back to college and thought, okay, I, I know what I want. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to focus on college and then go into corporate and work my way up the corporate ladder. And I actually started doing that. I got quite a, you know, good raises, making good money. I still wasn't happy. It just didn't feel like where I belonged. And I started looking into ways that I could invest because I wanted to, if I couldn't leave my nine to five, I at least wanted to retire earlier. So started looking at stocks, stock market, all this stuff and hated it. Just absolutely hated it. I could not get interested. It was like, it was like giving me an insurance manual and saying, read this and learn it. Like I just didn't want to, it wasn't what I wanted. No offense to insurance people, but it isn't interesting to me. But when you start looking at investment vehicles and ways to invest and how do you invest, real estate will come up eventually in your Google search. So it did. And I started researching real estate investing and I just fell in love. I loved every bit of it. I loved the success stories and reading about, you know, case studies. And I went, started going to seminars and buying books and trying to learn everything I could. And then 
probably the worst thing that can happen to somebody happened to me. I got stuck in the learning phase. I got stuck in the analysis paralysis phase. And next thing you know, I'm buying a book on buying notes. I'm buying a book on flipping. I'm buying a book on wholesaling. I'm buying a book on rentals. I'm buying all these different things. And, going to, and when you go to a seminar, by the way, guys, a lot of times what happens is these people go up on stage and everybody has their niche, the thing that they have become great at, and they convince you that is what you should be doing. And so I kept having the shiny object syndrome. And I went through this. And then, by the way, when you procrastinate or when you get in paralysis analysis and the learning phase and you get stuck, really what it is, the underlying problem is fear. And I was afraid. I, I told myself I was learning and I was being responsible because I'm trying to learn this industry before I jump into it. And there's some validity to that to a point. I spent five years doing that, right? I could have almost been, you know, I could have almost had my doctorate by then. Like I don't need five years to learn something just to get started. But once I made my first offer that got accepted in 2008, I was off to, off to the races. It was like, you know, it's kind of a, a crude analogy, but it, it was like a drug. I, I, I did it. I, I, I flipped this house. I made a lot of money on it. For me at the time, it was a lot of money, still a lot of money. And I was hooked. I, I needed to do another one. I needed to start building. And I realized I'm a builder, like not a literal builder because I really can't build anything, but uh, I'm a company builder. I like building companies. I like putting people together, building teams and scaling. That's what I'm good at. And I realized that when I did that first deal. So that's awesome. sort of the short version of my history. <laughs> great, great, great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that because audience has to be aware. You know, I've got them all across the board, whether they're already in real estate, they're a realtor, or there are a lot of my friends and family, just like you said, blue collar, regular job, nine to five. Yep. And they too have checked out a boot camp or a seminar or a free event. And they too, I seen that they struggle through the paralysis by analysis phase. So let's take, let's scale back a little bit. Take, take our audience back to where you were. You started learning these books and reading and learning about notes and fix and flips and all that stuff, which I know, I know that a lot of uh, the audience is out there. They're on YouTube, probably even watching or listening to this. Yeah. What kind of got you unstuck? Like you, you said you studied for about four years and what got you unstuck? It's a great question. <clears throat> so, so I, what I didn't talk to you about and tell you in my past was my mom is a nurturer, right? A lot of moms are. My mom's a nurturer. She'll always make excuses for me no matter what I do. If I lose weight, gain weight. Oh, you look great. Did you lose weight? No matter what I do, I'm the greatest, right? That's just- That's our moms, right? Moms, right? <laughs> My dad, on the other hand, was a military guy. He was a Marine. And uh, he is not a nurturer, to say the least. And he really didn't tolerate fear. He didn't tolerate putting things off. He didn't tolerate procrastination. He just, he didn't like any of that stuff. And so I got to a point where- I, I stopped, I ran out of justifications for not doing it. And the one last hurdle that I had to get past, or I shouldn't say even hurdle, that's not fair. The one last thing that I had to check, the box I had to check before I felt like I could truly engage and get started was I needed to bring my wife up to speed because to that point, she knew I was going to seminars and reading books, but I wasn't bringing her into my world. I wasn't bringing her into this excitement that was growing within me. And so I brought her into that. And the way that I brought her in and I thought, you know, I'm kind of an impatient guy. So I didn't really feel like I wanted to spend, you know, years gradually getting her up to speed. So locally in my market, 
there was a, a guy, a local, you know, guru, whatever you want to call him, who was advertising what he called a, a weekend fly on the wall boot camp, which was essentially two and a half days of about a dozen people in a room and him teaching them real estate investing. And, you know, the, the boot camp itself, the materials that we got and the information, you know, we paid $2,500 for it. Okay. So that's key to know. We paid $2,500 for it when we didn't have necessarily 2,500. And um, the information that we got and the materials, I don't think they were worth $2,500 to say the least. But what it did do is it instilled in us the belief that we could do it. It, it helped get my wife up to speed in kind of like a speed dating fashion. Like she got all this information crammed in her head within two days. And she also got the belief that we could do it. And more than the belief though was, if we're going to spend $2,500 for a two and a half day event, there's no way she's going to watch me sit on the couch night after night and not do something about it because she's very money conscious. So it's like, Hey man, we spent this money. You are going to use it, you know? And not that I had to be necessarily prompted, but it was good to have that motivation and that buy-in from my wife. Right? So a lot of us, you know, anybody out there listening who has a husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is, and they're not necessarily as excited about this business as you are, you know, it can be tough. So having my wife on board was absolutely critical. And that was the motivation I needed to kind of get me over the hump. And like I said, my, my dad in my head really kind of like this, this, you know, like this drill sergeant kind of mentality saying, what are you afraid of? Like, you know, basically not letting me be afraid. Now I got disgusted with myself, quite frankly, I got disgusted at the feeling and it's an ugly sinking feeling when you procrastinate or when you let fear rule you. Nobody likes it. Everyone knows what that feels like. They've had something in their life where they were afraid to do it and they didn't. And then they hate, they hate themselves for it on some level. And I was starting to really hate myself for not doing something about it. So all of these things kind of culminated where I had gotten disgusted with myself. We spent the money on the boot camp. My wife was excited. I'm excited. Like now's the time. It was sort of like almost like when you're on that high, high level diving board and you're afraid to jump off as a kid, sometimes you just have to go one, two, three, and just go, right? Like, don't think about it anymore, just do it. And I started making offers. So that's how I got past it. It was sort of a culmination of years of putting it off and fear building and, and like this, this feeling of like, uh, self-loathing is extreme, but something akin to like really not being happy with yourself. My self-confidence and, and the way I viewed myself was really taking a beating. And I needed to, to try it or I was going to not forgive myself. Now, I will say once I made that first offer that got accepted and I started working on my first deal and finished it, I, I completely 180 degrees changed the way I handle things. I am now an extreme action taker. Like if I decide I want to do something, I'm doing it before I'm thinking about it. I don't allow myself to get into paralysis analysis or whatever. I, I know that that's, a, that that's a danger sometimes. And now I, I'm almost on this crusade really to try to get people to understand that 90% of success is starting. Absolutely. Just, Absolutely. Nobody so, has ever been yeah. successful who didn't start, obviously, right? So, so that's great. Your wife was on board. Now take our audience into the day-to-day -day because it's one of those things where it's great to have spousal significant other support, but is it wasn't like, okay, you send 500 yellow letters or you throw out a hundred bandit signs, the phone's going to start ringing. Yeah. Or did it happen that way to you? Well, now let's frame the time frame that this was in. I'm, I got the first offer accepted, did my first flip in 2008. Okay. So 
in 2008, you know, the sky was falling. People were abandoning houses and, you know, the inventory was super high. So for me, I bought every house that I flipped for about four years off the MLS. I never did one stitch of marketing. I didn't have to. It was fish, shooting fish in a barrel. I would just open up the MLS or go to my real, at the time I was using a realtor, go to the realtor and he would just, he would send me all these opportunities and, and people were just, just taking anything, you know, even the banks at that point, a lot of them didn't know what to do with all this inventory. They just, they weren't equipped for this kind of, you know, influx of, of assets, underperforming assets, and they just didn't know what to do. So I, I was getting just crazy good deals for a handful of years before I ever went to direct mail, but day to day it was so, and I made a lot of mistakes and we can talk about those too, because they're important, but day to day, it was me in close contact with a realtor every day, them sending me deals on the MLS to look at and me just running numbers, evaluating and making offers. And I did that. And then I was working a nine to five. I was in corporate life back then. So for about three or four years, I kept my day job. So I would go to work, get there at about 7.30 in the morning, leave about 4.30, and then starting around five o'clock, I'm just going to house to house to house and taking pictures and looking at the renovation and all this. And in Michigan, in the wintertime, it gets dark at five o'clock. And so, there's a little snow, I think, too. And a little bit of snow, <laughs> and it's slightly cold. So I'm in, I'm in houses with no heat. I'm in basements with, and we have basements here. So I'm in basements with no lights, no heat, with a little you know, a cell phone flashlight, looking around like that was how I spent every wow. night of my life. Like Good I would for go you. from house to house to house, make offers, make offers, go look at houses, take contractors in to look at, I mean, it was, that was all I did nights, weekends. And then I worked my, my nine to five, which by the way, I didn't work for a bank. I didn't, I wasn't done at four 30 every day. Some days I had to work late. Some, some weeks I was working 80 hours and what was your job at that time? So at the time I was uh, what they call a, a program manager at a, uh, it was an automotive uh, like a tier two, we made basically the steel seat structures. We, it was a prototype uh, division of the company. So we would make 150 metal seats, crash them, evaluate them, re-engineer them, make them, crash them so that they're safe for the next model year. Got it. Got it. But I was, I was, but, but the, the key point of that is a good question. So I, I was, I was running programs. So I had budgets, I had timelines and I had to manage a crew of people who were assembling seats. So I had some some level of competence when it came to like working with contractors. But the difference is when you're working in a, in a, in a company as this was a global and international uh, automotive company, the people who go into work every day, they accept the fact that they're there. They have to work eight to 10 hours. They know their job. You're, you're almost more just facilitating and you're just making sure you're answering questions. When you're hiring contractors, it's a guy who probably doesn't know you or, you know, you just hired him. He doesn't know who you are. He's working on 10 other jobs at the same time. You know, there's just like, there's, it's a different mentality with contractors. So I thought I manage people. This is going to be easy. They want to be here. They know that, you know, they won't get paid if they don't like, it's not that way. It's a little different. You have to motivate contractors a little different than you do someone who goes into a company nine to five and does their job every day. Now you're 2008. How many flips did you do your first year? In 2008, I think I only did one or two. I okay. think it was halfway through the year when I got my first one. It was like June. And I think I got my second one under contract and start renovation. I might not even have finished it before the end of the year. It was, and by the way, back then, my wife was my partner. She didn't just buy into the concept. She was my partner. Now, 
her responsibility because it was it actually worked really really well because i learned later in life definitively i am not a detail person i'm not good at details if you want me to keep track of details you will fail so she would go to closing she would look at the huds like she would make sure the insurance was you know on the house and the utilities were moved in our name and move out of our name like she did all of that administrative stuff that i'm terrible at i would find houses negotiate with contractors and manage them. That was my job. And then we had a, a realtor who would sell the house at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. I think I- No, 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 you did. You did. So you, I wanted to stop you for a second, if you don't mind, because yeah. uh, you're dropping some real big golden nuggets for my audience. And some of them, they'll listen to these things and not realize that was a golden nugget. So number one, guys, he said he went through a realtor. So alignment was critically important how we got launched. Number yeah. two, he said that his wife, attention to detail. So guys, if you're flying solo and you're like me and Mike, we're both, I could tell, strong I's and D's or D-I's, yeah. you need an SC, okay? What does an SC mean? It's what Mike was describing about his wife. Very attention to detail, more cautious. That actually makes for a great powerhouse of a couple, yeah. partnership, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I agree, hundred percent. You're right. Using the disc analogy, I, I am a, I'm a suit. I'm a 99D. There you and go. Somewhere in the middle, I like I can be that if I need to be. Yeah, and then SC is just it, C is in the basement. You know, <laughs> S is super low. I, I have I'm no. the patience. same way, brother. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's I, honestly though, that's a lot of like visionary leaders. Like that's a profile that's pretty common, and it's not uncommon for guys like you and I to have a low SC. It's just that nobody is high D I S C. I just don't know anybody exactly. like that. Exactly. Let's talk about the funding. So, yeah. you started off like most people out there, one to two sales a year, a flip here and there. Then all of a sudden, you went gangbusters. And I think on one of your other interviews or podcasts, you said something about a million a year. Now, how do you go from that number of one to two to all of a sudden a million a year? Talk to our audience maybe about the financing. Was it also more mindset? How did you just boom, exploded? Yeah, it, it, was, a, it was a seven year process. Okay, so I was an overnight success that took seven years. Um, I had some success in the early years for sure. So at first, so the first house I ever did, let's talk about that one just for a second. I used a, a mortgage, traditional mortgage. That's how I financed the deal. And then I used, we used our personal liquid cash and credit cards to fund the renovation. And then that's down? how we did it. How much, down? how much down was the traditional financing? Uh, 3% down. So it was a $40,000 house at 3% down, right? Like, wow. Pretty little. Uh, and then we put $15,000 into it renovation wise. And we ended up making about $15,000 profit when we were done. So it was, a t it was a nifty little Michigan in 2008, a nifty little flip, you know, nothing to write home about, but a solid base hit, right? Um, now, how did I go from there to where I am now? A lot of evolution, a little bit of pivoting on my model. So I started flipping houses in 08. And then I was a house flipper, exclusively a house flipper until about 2014, mid 2014, late 2014. Uh, at my height of flipping, I was flipping like two a month, right? So I got up to about 24 deals. Nice little, nice little, uh, little operation there. Uh, and then at some point, I, I took on a partner, I, and it's kind of a long story, but I, essentially I hired a salesperson because I started doing direct mail in 2014, right? I said for a while it was all MLS. Well, I got wise and the MLS dried up a little bit. So I got wise and started doing my own marketing. And so that meant I needed to go out on appointments and talk to sellers and get contracts. And I'm a, 
I'm a competent salesperson. Um, passable maybe would be another word. I'm not great. And, but I was getting, I was getting deals. I was getting contracts and we were, we were flipping them. They were always good. But I met this sales guy who found me online and he wanted just to pick my brain because he wanted to get some rentals. And after we were done talking, he's like, hey, I'm in sales. I'm not in real estate sales, but I'm in sales. I'm a good salesperson. And he kind of told me what he was up to. And he's like, I really want to learn this business. And I would be willing to go on appointments and try to help you in the sales side of it just to learn. And so I brought him in. I ended up giving him commission right off the bat, but I brought him in and with the same amount of leads and the same amount of opportunities as me, he was doing two and three times the amount of deals. And I was nice. like, wow, this is what real sales looks like. This is someone who's actually has a craft that they've honed and this is their superpower. And I was like, wow. So anyways, it, the, the reason I partnered with them is kind of a long story too, but essentially I found out through having just good, healthy conversations. Like, Hey, what are your goals? What are your aspirations? What do you want to do? And he's like, well, you know, I'm happy doing this, but eventually I'm, I want to, I want to work for myself. I want to have my own company. And so I had to decide at some point in the near future, do I want to compete with them or do I want to bring them on and see what we can do together? And it, it was kind of, it could have went either way, but I, I brought them on because I thought truly in this case, one plus one could equal 10 not two, because if one plus one equals two in a partnership, you're better off just staying alone in my opinion. But if one plus one can equal eight, 10, 12, 20, you know, multiples, exponential growth, then it, then it makes sense. And so that was the start of what happened to get me from a few deals a month to doing like 10 to 12 deals a month. But also I mentioned a pivot. So there came a time where, again, everything I'm telling you, we could talk for an hour about each individual phase, but essentially my contractor started failing me a little bit, not showing up, overcharging, lying about things that, that he did and not having receipts and things like that. So I had to find a new contractor, but at the exact same time, I had a little fallout with my realtor. Uh, we had a couple of real swing and miss on, on comps and what a house might be worth after I renovate it. And, you know, a couple of deals went, went really, really poorly and which is, which is okay. Everyone makes mistakes, but it's, the, it's, it's always your response. Like if you do something that causes me harm or it causes you harm, it's really about how they react to that. And someone who owns it and says, that's on me. I know what I did. Here's what I did wrong. Here's how I'm fixing it. Won't happen again. Like that's acceptable. Someone who says, hey man, what do you want from me? You win some, you lose some. I don't know what to tell you. Like I, I can't have that on my team, right? So I had to part ways with my realtor and, and, I, and I was at a crossroads, but I told you I had started marketing on my own at this point. So I'm still getting opportunities that are coming to me, but now I'm faced with a situation where I only, I only had one contracting crew at the time, which is probably a mistake, right? The, 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 the worst thing, the worst amount of contractors I have is just one because they hold all the power, right? So I only had one at the time and uh, I only had one realtor that I was dealing with, right? Just loyalty or whatever. I didn't have a bunch of realtors. So I had no way of really taking on a deal, but I was getting the opportunity. So one deal came along my desk. It looked really, really great. I went to talk to the seller. She loved me. We got along. I could really help her. I thought I signed the contract. And, you know, I told you I'm a risk taker. After that first deal, I'm a risk taker. So my philosophy was I'm going to sign the contract and I'll do right by her, but I'll figure it out. I don't have a, an idea right now what I'm going to do, but I'll figure it out. So I get back to my house. I'm looking at this contract. Man, it's a great deal. There's a lot of money here. But I also know all the flippers in my market. I know all, they're all my buddies. I know who they are. So I called one of my friends who was having trouble finding deals. And I said, hey, man, I got this deal. Now, I didn't tell him this, but I had gotten under contract for 95000 right? The, the, the market's bouncing back a little bit. First deal was 40000 buy-in. This one's ninety-five. 
But I knew a flipper like me would probably pay up to 110,000 and still be happy with the deal. So I just said, hey, I've got this deal. Here's the information. I'll send you pictures and things. Uh, would you buy it for 110? Is, is that a price that you'd pay? He said, give me 10 minutes and I'll let you know. So I sent the information to him. 10, 15 minutes later, he calls me back. He's like, I'll take it. It's like, I just made $15,000, right? Nice. That, that can be an entire flip in Michigan. So I was like, well, that was pretty cool. Believe it or not, within a week, I get another opportunity. It's in a different neighborhood, in a different city, but it's, it's the exact same numbers, same purchase price, same ARV and relatively the same amount of renovation in a very similar neighborhood. It's, it's very much the same as the first one. I call the exact same guy. I said, I've got another deal for you. You can have it for 110. I bought this, I bought it for 95 as well. The second one, he's like, he didn't even need time. He goes, I'll take it. He just had to hear where it was and some basic numbers and he knows me. So he goes, I'll take it. And I'm like, I just made thirty thousand dollars in one week, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't talk to a contractor, I didn't deal with a mortgage company, I didn't have to deal with buyers or appraisers. I was like, this is pretty cool. So I pivoted my model back then to be a little more heavy on the wholesale and a little less on the flipping side. And at the same time, you mentioned seven-figure flipping. I joined the seven-figure flipping program as a member, and I started surrounding myself with people who were doing and had businesses that I wanted. I, I wanted to emulate who, who they were in business. And so I had a chance to sit down and surround, right? You, the five people you surround yourself with. So I was surrounding myself now with people who were achieving at a higher level. And by the way, people who achieve at a high level, most times what I find, they're very giving. They have an abundance mentality. And so I went from my little market where there was a lot of scarcity mentality, everyone's protecting their secrets, to this national mastermind with all these people who are doing way more than anybody in my market have way better businesses and they have an abundance mentality and they're just giving me information freely they're showing me their playbooks and they're telling me hey when i was where you are and then to get where i am this is what i did and i was able to use their hindsight right what they did 2020 hindsight as my foresight i i got to use it as a crystal ball going forward so from that point changing my model which by the way Wholesaling just fits my personality. I'm very impatient. I like things to move fast and it moves fast. You know, you have a, you have a deal that comes in two weeks later, you monetize it and you're done. So that combined with the rocket fuel of knowing what others had done before me to succeed and what they did wrong so I could avoid those things, hockey stick. I went from doing two deals a month to doing 10 to 12 deals a month in nice. less than 12 months. Nice. All so of those mainly occurred. wholesaling. Yeah, I went mainly wholesaling. Yep. Wow. Okay, so guys more golden nuggets right there all right find out what you're really really good at and passionate about and start working really really hard and focus on that guys so that was awesome that was awesome number two another golden nugget surround yourself with bigger thinkers people that are playing a larger game and man i'll tell you you, you just nailed something right there there's a lot of people that are operating on the scarcity mindset, especially when economy tightens up, their bank accounts start to shrink, especially now where we are today. Whoever's listening, you know, whether they're listening currently during the coronavirus or afterwards, the, the scarcity mindset is so tragic that it'll hold you back. So that's a great point. I want to I talk to you or ask you about the realtors because a good amount of my audience is also realtors. Mm -hmm. Some of my audience that are realtors are still kind of novice or beginners. And they're like, man, I got to work with an investor because instead of onesie, twosie sales here and there, my investor will buy five to 10 homes from me. 
what were some of the things that turned you off and why did you fire that agent? Let's go into a little more detail yeah. because I think that's really important. Well, number one, I would say to the non-realtors listening, you should understand how to run your own numbers, right? Doesn't mean you don't need help or don't ask for help, but I didn't understand how to run my numbers for a couple of years, which was, it put me in a very vulnerable spot. Nice. Um, but what it was eventually that really soured me on this contractor was, you know, he, I, I didn't feel like he was taking me seriously for the amount of deals we did together. Right? Contractor or realtor? Realtor. I'm sorry. Realtor. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't take me seriously enough for the number of deals that we did together. Um, I, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit too, to every realtor listening right now, I understand that investors can be frustrating. And unfortunately, you know, there's no barrier to entry to saying I'm a real estate investor, right? So I know that, that for every really good, conscientious, business-minded real estate investor who does what they say and say, you know, they do what they say and, and, and they're where they're, they're honest about what they're doing, or whatever. For every good one of us, there are a handful of bad ones. I understand that. So, but, but I, I find that with realtors sometimes too, you know, there's very good ones and then there's not so good ones. So uh, let's just take out of the mix that there's bad investors. Cause I know there are. The one thing that you can definitely do is in, in real estate investors want to be listened to. And I think the advantage, cause you talked about some newbie real estate investor, I'm sorry, some newbie uh, realtors, the advantage you have as a new realtor is you don't have necessarily a lot of preconceived ideas about how things work and you're very open-minded to investors and investors love nothing more than an open-minded realtor who will listen to what they're looking for and work with them and try to try to understand their needs instead of trying to, you know, teach them real estate, be open-minded and, and understand that we do things a little bit differently than, than the normal buyers and sellers that you might deal with. Right? So that's number one. Number two is, um, you know, let's, I, I always want a realtor to work with me on comps because the difference between sometimes what we see as investors and what we want to do is we're looking for after repair value, which isn't necessarily average market value or median value. It's what could my house be worth if you compare it to only the most renovated, recently renovated top of the line house in the market. And that's not necessarily how realtors traditionally evaluate houses because they have to understand there's foreclosures, there's houses that are dated, there's all these variations. So you have to build expectations properly and that's fair. But an investor only, and I teach people all the time how to run their numbers. And I say, I don't want you to use foreclosures and dated houses in your comps because that's not what our house will be let's assume the house will be top notch and only compare it to not top notch houses and tell me what it'll be worth. So working together like that is the key um, to really working with an investor. And listen, there's, there's bad ones, but you should also, as, an, as a realtor, you should expect that you'll not only represent them on the sell side, but on the buy side, right? There's, there's an opportunity for dual commissions there. If the, real, if the investor is really invested in you and really committed to working with you and having a relationship, you can expect to have that on both sides. So, and then honestly, as a realtor, you want the house to sell at the end of the day for top dollar. It makes sense, right? You want the investor to do a great job. So working with them during the renovation phase, maybe dropping in and looking at the house and looking what's happening and saying, 
hey, you know what? I see you're not going to do anything here, but I can tell you from experience, you're going to get the most bang for your buck if you spend some money here and maybe not so much here. And that feedback is gold to an investor because a lot of investors really don't know exactly what they're supposed to be doing, especially when they're new, they're guessing at the renovation and maybe they're dumping money into the wrong thing, or maybe they're being real too taste specific, right? What I would do in a house and maybe accent walls and certain things that I like, that's not how you necessarily renovate a house because it doesn't appeal to the masses, right? So you going as a realtor and saying, I can tell you from experience, here's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. And here's what buyers always look at. And this is what I suggest you drop in on that renovation and sort of be on the team as instead of, Hey, you, I sold that house. You know, you bought the house through me, call me when it's done. You know, like that's a bad approach. Investors will absolutely eat it up if you help them during the renovation to understand what they're doing right and wrong. Wow, that's some really great points. So folks, rewind this, listen again. Another big couple golden nuggets right there. So he talked from both perspectives. Mike said something about in investors. Know your numbers. I love that because I come from both sides. I'm an investor, I'm a realtor, I do both. And so knowing your numbers is critical, whether it's single family, multifamily, commercial, real estate, retail, et cetera. Yeah. Because man, if you miss it just by a hair, it could be tragic. I mean, I was working with a, a fixer flipper that became a developer, started developing homes. He came to me for my advice. I said, hey, it's 1.1 all day long, any day. He was like, no, Joe, it's 1.6. And guess what? Six months later, he's still holding the property <laughs> and he had to drop it to 1.1. So meanwhile, investors, you're paying these holding costs and you're losing your shirt. So yeah, I get it. I totally agree with you, Mike. Know your numbers. And then realtors, please. I've worked with investors as well. You know, add value, add value, add value. Don't worry about that commission and have commission breath because you do them right one time, well, they're not going to shoot the golden goose. You're going to give them more deals and more deals. And then all of a sudden you will earn their trust. And yeah, you might be their go-to and you're doing five to 10 a month. So I like that, Mike. That was awesome. Great. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think realtors are a central part of the team. There's no doubt about it if you're an investor. But I think real, I, you know, I've, I've encountered a lot of realtors that didn't seem to understand the value of working with investors, probably because they worked with a few bad ones. And I, I get that, right? But if, if I'm a realtor, and especially a new realtor that doesn't have a lot of, a lot of uh, clients, a uh, client list, I absolutely want to find good investors in my area. And by the way, go to RIAs. Like I, I, people ask me all the time, how do I find a realtor? You know what I tell them? Go to your local RIA and find out who the realtors are who are showing up because right off the bat, they at least have the open-mindedness to go to an investment meetup like that and meet investors. So right off the bat, they're way more investor-friendly than just calling some out of the, you know, off of Google or something. Great tip. Great tip. Let's uh, talk about some of these flips that gone bad. You <laughs> mentioned you had a yeah. couple of. Oh, I've got, I've got a, I've got a doozy of a one bad one. Now, again, share with my audience. What's that? Yeah. Share with my audience yeah. because I'm sure they'd find value. I will. This is a tale of, uh, this is a tale of ego and a tale of, uh, I don't know, ego probably. But so I purchased a house. Now these are Michigan numbers, right? So they're not going to blow your mind if you're in California, the numbers are going to seem small, but in Michigan where the average home price 
over the last, you know, 15, 10, 15 years is about $150,000. Like that's a good middle of the road, nice house, right? You can start getting up into the two and $300,000 range. You're talking about really nice houses. So we had a property under contract. Um, the purchase price was $200,000. And at the end of the day, we, no, I'm sorry. The purchase price was 250. At the end of the day, I comped it out. It, this thing should have been worth $500,000 all day long right? It was dated, but it wasn't trashed out. Somebody was living there and we had it under contract. We we're going to wholesale it. So we found a, we found a, a buyer, a flipper buyer for it. And we got right up to the closing date the day before. And he backed out. He mm. lost funding. Right now I should have, because, because of the dollar amount, I know that the buyer pool and, and, and frankly, the pool of end buyers, home buyers at the end of the day is smaller, right? The more expensive a house you get, it's all relative to your market, but you start getting double and triple the average house price. And now everything shrinks. Everyone's, you know, the amount of people interested. So I didn't have any other buyers who were interested and I had and have a lot of liquid cash. I have the ability to jump in and save deals like this. And rather than looking at it and saying, hey, this is sort of not in my wheelhouse. This doesn't fit the mold of houses that we do every single day. It's a little on the high end. Maybe I should tap the brakes and just chalk this up to a loss and, and kind of move on. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to step in. I'm, and by the way, I will say this too, in my defense, the people who were selling it, they had a, uh, a disabled child. They couldn't do a lot of showings because they didn't want people coming through the house with her there. And I just felt like I was going to let them down if this deal didn't go through. So some of it was like, I'm not going to be a bad guy here. I want to do, always do the right thing. So I jumped in and saved this deal. Okay, so now I own the house. We're going to flip it. I know the comps are sky high. You know, this will be easy. We're going to just do some real light touch-up stuff. Just not even paint and carpet. Like we're just going to go through and do the like handyman kind of repairs to the house, make sure everything's tight and bolted down and everything, you know, works and we'll throw it on the market. Right. And this is in the summertime. So here in Michigan, locally, summertime is the best time to sell. Cause once you start getting into the fall and winter, things slow down. It's like you mentioned earlier, snow and ice and rain are cold and it's just bad. So I just did super superficial stuff to the house, threw it on the market, sat, sat, people came and looked at it pass pass we weren't getting a lot of feedback that was useful next thing you know we're getting into school time now right well we need to put a little bit more money into this house so we spent probably about a third of what the actual full renovation should have been put it back on the market nobody nobody no offers low offer low offer no offers next thing you know fast forward we've sort of piece by piece renovated this house until we got it fully renovated. Now it's dead of winter. Holding costs are just killing us because we had, we, I was using unsecured funds. I had funds that people lend. I, I have people lend me money unsecured, no, not against real estate. Interest rates are a little higher for that. It's not meant to be used long-term. And I had it on the most expensive house we'd ever bought. And anyways, at the end of the day, we ended up selling it in the winter time. We had, because we didn't have economies of scale when we're, when we're renovating it, you give the contractor the whole job, you can get the cost down. You piecemeal a job to different contractors here and there, you're paying a premium for every single thing you do because they have to make it worth their time, right? So at the end of the day, the renovation was way more than it should have been. It took way longer. We sold it in the wintertime, which means we didn't send it, sell it for nearly, by the way, we didn't sell it for even close to what we thought. We, were, we bought it for 250 We ended up putting 
uh, about 75 into it. And I think we only sold it for like 300, 325. Like it was really bad. So withholding cost, cost of renovation, everything all told, we lost six figures on the house. We lost about $100,000 on this house. And it was a really big lesson for us. Now, the one thing I will say at the end of this, like dust has settled, you kind of go back and you, you, you do a post-mortem kind of what happened here, what could we have done better? I still really don't understand why it didn't sell for more. I, I can't, because I had, once we had it on the market and I'm like, this doesn't make sense. We had different realtors and you know, come in and no one could give me a good reason why this wasn't selling for more than it was. It just wasn't, it was just one of those houses. I don't know, something about it, it just didn't go for what I thought it should have on paper. So we just took a huge bath on it. And it was a big lesson for us on, you know, it was really my ego that kept it in play. If we would have passed on it, I know another investor would have come along and probably gave them what they wanted for it. And they probably would have, they would have renovated it right away. They would have got it in the market in the summertime and they would probably would have made out a lot better than we did. So ego and just, I can do anything kind of a mentality sometimes can get to you if you really should. Sometimes you have to know when to fold them, right? As Kenny Rogers say, no one to hold them, no one to fold them. <laughs> sometimes you got to know when to fold them. It's an old reference. A lot of you don't Oh, get I, I totally get that okay. one. <laughs> Oh man. Well, that's a great lesson. That's a great lesson. And guys, you know, there's another golden nugget right there. You know, your ego should not be your amigo. You know, it's one of those things that, man, when you start thinking the wrong way and kind of changing your formula, changing on what's tried and true, it could yeah. bite you in the rear, yeah. you know, and I'm glad you shared that, Mike, because a lot of the, this audience, well, not, I don't, I'm just kind of presumptive, but some of my audience out there might be thinking like, this is an easy gig, right? And, and it's not. Uh, it's one of those things like if you want to go big time, it's just like anything else, you know? Otherwise, everybody would be doing it. If it were that easy, everybody would be doing it. So thanks for sharing all that. Any last kind of bit of advice or encouragement for the audience? Anything you want to share to tie this all in? Yeah, I will. And I said it kind of earlier on. I think the biggest cancer of, of success, the biggest reason that I see people not succeeding in anything they're trying, it really kind of, kind of transcends industries and transcends whatever. It could be anything you want to do. They, they don't just get started, right? I listen to, in, in, in over the years, I'm a big fan of feeding my brain good things, feeding my brain motivation, feeding my brain advice from people that I respect. And I've listened to, I, I don't even know how many interviews with various successful people in various industries at all levels. And the one thread that runs through every interview I've heard, and when we get to this point, whether you're talking to Elon Musk, Tony Robbins, Steve Jobs, doesn't matter. I, I hear a common thread through every one of them. When they get to the end and they say, what is your advice for folks who say, hey, I want to be like you. I want to do what you're doing or I want to do something. The advice that I heard in various forms was always just start. Just start. You know enough. You've heard enough. Heck, you could listen to just a couple of your podcasts or watch a few of your YouTube videos on a certain subject and you know enough to get started. Are you an absolute master of that thing? No, not yet. But you only have to know enough to start. And then once you start, the next hurdle, learn what you have to learn to get past that and then do that because momentum is everything in this world, everything. You want to get in shape and work out, get down there and start because after a couple of weeks or a few months, 
the momentum, the habit, it'll start forming. And I have a habit of taking action now. And people have to get used to having a habit of taking action. Most people have a habit of not taking action. So get out there and just start. I always say at the end of my podcast, make today the best day, but you have to get started. I love it, Mike. This has been a pleasure. You dropped so many great words of wisdom, some golden nuggets. I definitely see you being even more successful than ever. Any upcoming events you wanted to share with the audience or yeah. anything to subscribe, you know, where to reach you, anything like that? Totally. I've got three asks. Number one, if you could and would, you listen to podcasts, obviously. I would love for you to go check out mine. Joe's is great, but if you could check out mine, I would be appreciative. Also, I just uh, published my first book. It's called, I don't know if you can see here. It's called Level Congratulations. Jumping. Yeah, it's, it was a huge, huge undertaking, but I'm very proud of it. Uh, it's on Amazon now, so you can go check that out and get a copy of it. I would, I would love it. If you could give me a rating and review, that would be even better. Um, and then finally, you asked me where they can see me. If you, if you have any interest in, in sitting down and talking to me personally and getting some one-on-one, -on -one, we do an event every year in Seven Figure Flipping called Flip Hacking Live. This year, it takes place in Orlando, and it's, uh, it starts uh, mid-October. Mid, mid it's like the 17th is the first day. But if you go to juststartrealestate.com forward slash Flip Hacking Live, so it's juststartrealestate.com forward slash Flip Hacking Live, it'll take you right to the event page. You can see everything, tons of speakers. I'll be speaking at the event, tons of great real estate investors sharing like crazy. I told you about the mastermind where people just openly share with an abundance mindset. That is this event day after day of people sharing what they're doing to be successful in their market. And it's a must see event. You're the man, Mike. Thanks again so much for being on our show. Guys, subscribe, subscribe to Mike's show and follow us by all means. Hope you got a lot of golden nuggets like I did. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Mike. Our company is not responsible for the success or failure of your business decisions relating to any information presented by our company or our company programs, products, and or services.